This episode of Command Edit is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions. Their Evo shared storage systems are for post-production workgroups ranging anywhere from one to four users, all the way to state-of-the-art post facilities with over a petabyte of storage. Every Evo includes their easy-to-use media management software for organizing, tagging, and finding your media across all of your storage devices, even external, local, and cloud services. On top of that, all of their Evo systems have native Avid project bin sharing, project locking for Adobe Premiere, library sharing for Final Cut Pro X, and a bunch of other workflow features you and your team will love. To learn more about Evo shared storage systems, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash command edit. Hey guys, what is up? Welcome to episode 74 of the Command Edit Podcast, uh, the post-production podcast that goes beyond the desk, and that tagline is uh, a little more than appropriate today, which I'll explain in just a moment. If you can hear over Peyton crying in the background, sorry guys, um, she's trying to jump out the window because there's people walking by. Anyway, uh, Nick is off this week, so it's just me, Josh. Uh, if this is your first episode, uh, Nick and myself, we're both freelance editors and we chat with each other or with amazing post-production guests like we have in store for you today about all sorts of post-production topics. Today, well, this episode came about for a really selfish reason. Uh, I absolutely love Japan. And our guest today recently spent several weeks over in Japan teaching editing to university students. So needless to say, I wanted to chat with him about Japan and, and his experience over there. You do not have to be a lover of Japan like me uh, to enjoy this episode. As expected, we drifted way far off course, which was perfectly fine with me. We chatted about all different editing styles across the globe, uh, trying to figure out what emotions and how to get these emotions out of your audience, and we psychoanalyzed some of my struggles in a recent editing project. Uh, our guest today is none other than Norman Holland. Norman is a media expert. He is, of course, an editor, as well as a professor of cinematic arts at USC, and he travels all over the world as an editing educator. How cool is that? Uh, Norman is also a published author, and we get into his books, uh, The Film Editing Room Handbook and The Lean Forward Moment in our conversation. Uh, our conversation began with a really long-winded story uh, by me about this one time in Japan, and since I'm an editor, you know what, I'm going to do some editing. Uh, if you're curious about it and want to know how I got stranded in this small lake town in kind of the middle of nowhere Japan, I'll tack it on to the very end of the episode, but that means I'm just kind of picking a spot at random for us to jump into our conversation, so I hope it makes sense. Before we get into it, uh, I want to thank Studio Network Solutions for sponsoring this episode. Their Evo shared storage systems are for post-production work groups ranging from anywhere from one to four editors all the way uh, to state-of-the-art post-production facilities with one PB, which I think is petabyte? petabyte uh, of storage. Uh, Nick told me once, and I can't remember what 1PB means, um, but 1PB is a lot of storage. Uh, every Evo includes their easy-to-use media management software for organizing, tagging, and finding your media across all your storage devices, even external, local, and cloud services. 
On top of that, all of their Evo systems have native Avid project bin sharing, project locking for Adobe Premiere, and library sharing for Final Cut 10, and a bunch of other workflow features that you and your team will love. To learn more about Evo shared storage systems, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash command edit. Okay, let's do this. Here is my conversation with Norman Holland. I, I know this was our first time in Japan and I'd been invited to teach at the Tokyo University of the Arts uh, in Yokohama. So they have a branch where their film, TV, emerging media, and their animation division is up in Yokohama. And um, so we said, bucket list, Japan, yes. Let's just kind of, you know, for a week we'll stay in Yokohama and then we'll do Kyoto and a couple of other places that, but who knows if I'll ever be back again, right? right. So let's so let's just do that. And um, my wife's a fantastic planner. So she did all this research ahead of time. The only thing she couldn't control is basically during the two additional weeks we stay that's right in between Christmas and New Year's where nothing's going on. <clears throat> but that... Um, we were able to get to a number of different loved Kyoto, went to this fantastic art island, on, uh, which is not near anything, but it's, but it's a series of islands that's privately owned with nothing but museums and outdoor art. Wow. Kind of like the outdoor art park in Hakone. Mm -hmm. um, so we got there. We just went to a number of, and then ended up in Tokyo for a while. And it's like when we were done, we were like, that's it. We have to leave now. <laughs> so I'm completely where you are uh, in that I would love to go back. I had a great time teaching there. Yeah. And, um, you know, as long as I didn't screw up completely, they might invite me back, in which case, yes, I'm there. Yeah, way to go. <laughs> All right, so I know we just kind of, we, we jumped in at some point here in the podcast. So let's uh, let's let's rewind a little bit. And uh, Norman, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and maybe the, the story of how you made it over to teach in Japan and how you teach worldwide? Mm -hmm. Okay, so m most, I, I do about 7,000 different things because... I just think that that's, you know, that's how I stay young while being old. Um, but my major job is I'm a professor at the USC Film School, called the School of Cinematic Arts. Uh, I teach grads, undergrads. I primarily focus on editing, though a lot of our classes are uh, team taught, meaning I'll teach next to a directing instructor, a cinematography, sound and art director, producing instructor, which is amazing for me because I get to learn a lot. Um, so for about a dozen years, I was head of the editing department there until I stepped down about two and a half years ago so I could do things like, oh, I don't know, edit. <laughs> um, I'm still teaching, but now I have all this extra time. So naturally, I filled it up with lots of things. So I write. Uh, I have a couple of books that uh, have been out for a while, one of which uh, is a kind of it's called the film editing room handbook it's an it's a tour of the filmmaking process from the point of view of the assistant editor mm -hmm. so how to organize everything and uh what's what's important it's not a tour of any nle or anything because i don't care about that it's focus on what the job 
is, or at least it was five years ago when the book came out. Uh, and then another one, which is what a lot of my teaching is, this is going to lead to a discussion about the international teaching. Um, uh, but uh, when I first started teaching years ago, uh, editing full time, and I realized that editing is very hard to talk about, or at least then was. And I came up with this theory that I use all the time called the lean forward moment. And if I could take maybe three sentences to sort of describe what that is. Um, we know from observation that human beings worldwide, internationally, react more when something changes on screen. You often watch it to a close-up. Inside, they lean forward and pay a little bit more attention. <clears throat> you introduce a piece of music that hadn't been there before. You lean forward and pay more attention. Um, cutting pace changes or slows down or speeds up or whatever, you lean forward and pay more attention. So at the core, uh, knowing that we can control an audience's reaction by changing certain things on screen, uh, wide shots to close-ups, et cetera, et cetera, um, when do we choose to do that? Be conscious of every single cut we make, of every camera move we have and can use. Uh, make nothing accidental. So um, that led to uh, sort of some useful discussion with my students beyond the editing facet of it. So cinematography students, sound students, directing, writing students. Uh, and I just sort of eventually put it all together in a book which examines how to control audiences' reactions from every point of view, not just editing, every point of view using this theory. So. Because of that, and because of my position at USC, I get invited to talk in a lot of places. And I just discovered I love talking to international audiences, to different cultures. I love working with them in workshops because while they're all reacting similarly, culturally, the way in which they create those changes are different. So I wanted to learn more about that. So that's sort of the long, I wish it was a shorter story, but the longer story on how I got from um, uh, sort of beginning to teach to doing my international teaching. And this was, by the way, this was sort of based on um, years, uh, when I started teaching at USC, no one said, here's the theories you teach. It was like, teach, I edit. And I'd been editing for 20, 25 years on features in TV and corporate videos and music videos and all of that. And I had to think, why do I make a cut here as opposed to here? Why do I change pace here as opposed to there? And so that's where all this came from. We're, we're going to get in Japan, but you know, I'm very interested in how you know, you've come up with your teaching, um, obviously through um, your experience working on all sorts of different videos. Um, how has teaching you know, across the world uh, has that opened your eyes at all to different editing techniques or different editing theory? Oh, absolutely. It just the approach to what's considered storytelling is different culture to culture. They all sort of do react in well, audiences, react worldwide to when things change on screen. Um, but the things that they're changing, as I said, might be different. Uh, so I can give you one little example that I think is 
uh, completely appropriate to, to to talk about the different culture. So I did a workshop uh, several years or many years ago in Jordan, in Amman, uh, and they were making short films. Uh, it was a three-week workshop, uh, and I kind of was charged with organizing it all and shaping the curriculum and all of that. And in discussion with people who are Los Angeles-based Jordanians, which is, I'm, I'm LA-based, um, I discovered and through reading and talking with people that it's a very oral storytelling culture. For years, they do lots of verbal stories passed down generation to generation. So I asked them before I arrived, I said, on the first day, I'm going to ask you to sit in the middle of the room and tell a story. And that's what they did. And then we recorded them telling the story. And we looked at it, and it was like so boring, right? It's just like someone teaching a story. But what parts weren't boring? What parts were interesting? Um, and I think that my two US-based teaching assistants who were there helping out were bored by things that that audience wasn't, those filmmakers weren't. So then we said, now let's go out and shoot some things that'll work around that story using the same audio track, but now let's put images to it in the places where you think it needs to be. And they didn't always choose the same places that my US uh, teaching assistants would have. Um, sometimes they chose things that were, um, to some audience, it might seem even more boring. Uh, so a picture of a beach that sat for a while. Okay. Lapping waves or whatever. Uh, and then we went to the next step. Well, now how does sound add that? Uh, some of them were completely invested in what a uh, horror movie would be like, and so they wanted it to look like that, or depending on what the story was. So, uh, And then the final exercise over the last week and a half was to shoot a sort of from scratch fictionalized version of that story uh, as you would in which they would not appear. Yeah, so the final uh, uh, thing the last week and a half was for them to shoot a fictionalized version of the story uh, and to uh, to bring different sorts of storytelling and different, but different uh, visual imagery that they were not a part of and the more active storytelling part of it, on, and but to use that as a basis. And though I've used those techniques with U.S workshops and some of my own students, the end product tended to be longer cuts, um, cameras not as active, um, sometimes a very poetic use of sound as opposed to a, um, a realistic diegetic, which is a word I'd never heard of until I started teaching at USC, a kind of diegetic version of the sound. Um, uh, so their pacing was different. Their, um, uh, the manner in which the story was told was different, but it still communicated. Do you, as an educator, do you try and change that at all? Do you try and adjust their thinking towards those kind of things? Do you, what do you do? No, not at all, actually. No, um, I think that uh, 
you know, to the contrary, I think that I can talk about why things that I react to, I react to them in the way I do. I can talk about that. Um, I can talk about why things that they do, I react to, positive or negatively, whatever. Um, but uh, it's not my job as a, you know, as a elderly, white, straight male from the U.S. to kind of tell them the only way of doing it is this particular way. But even with our own students at USC, we have a tremendous number of international students who have come to learn how to tell stories maybe more in a U.S.-centered way. Um, but they're going to bring their own take on it. And I, I always start by asking, what is it you want to get okay. out of this? And start from there, and then is it working? Is it not? How could this be better? Mm -hmm. And would you say that another thing you would probably consider uh, up front is just how well do you know your audience? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think that um, if you want to be a filmmaker who communicates with an audience, then I think it's important to have a feeling about what's working for an audience and what's not. The, the, the slippery slope there um, is uh, how do you bring something original and of yourself to it? Uh, and by the way, this is true. I've had students who've gone on to do really amazing wedding and event videos. And it doesn't have to be that big Hollywood kind of thing. I think that's really so 20th century as opposed to what's happening today. Um, so, I mean, you do a lot of uh, work which is not in that, hey, that kind of um, a script-based, uh, traditional-oriented storytelling, right? And so you right. have your own knowledge of your audience. Mm -hmm. Completely, yes. Yeah. So uh, I actually, I, I just did my first scripted piece since like college. So just as a professional, I did my first scripted piece, um, a mm -hmm. scripted narrative. And it's, it was completely foreign to me because um, most of the time I'm doing corporate, I'm doing training, those sorts of right. things, those things, you know, pay the bill, pay the pays, you know, keeps the lights right. on. Um, so I finally got the opportunity to do narrative and... That's fantastic. Congrats, congrats, congrats. It was so different for me because I, I had to go back to the drawing board to really think about, all right, what's the message I'm trying to convey? Um, for a lot of the time, you know, with the, the corporate world... Um, you know what they want. Um, but for the, the, the narrative world, it's like, what's the message here? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, well, I, I think actually that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it sounds like um, the, the particular characteristics that you need to have in order to understand a corporate world audience is not that different from your ability to understand an audience of uh, from a straight narrative film, a scripted narrative, right? I don't know what uh, was there a genre that your narrative piece uh, was in? Uh, comedy. Comedy. Okay, so so a comedy has lots of rules and lots of ways to break those rules. Um, similarly, unless you have a complete a hole for a client, um, you also have the ability to sort of break form to some degree, depending upon who they are. But you have to figure out how the audience is going to react to something. Doesn't Does not do you one tiny bit of good to have 
an audience in an instructional video fall asleep. Mm -hmm. So you still have to keep them engaged. You still have to find what are the really, really important moments where I want them to wake up, wake up kind of thing. Uh, and that's, I would submit that it's not that different a skill, understanding an audience and then manipulating. I like that word. A lot of people hate that word, but I think we manipulate an audience so they hear the story or understand the story that we want to bring to them. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, this is how you install this particular part, or this is a new thing that we're rolling out for the company, or whether it's, um, here's an unlikely comedic situation and here's where the comedy grows out of it. Mm -hmm. You set things up, you change things at certain points, and then you pay off. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the same, it's, it's similar. I won't say it's the same. Mm -hmm. I think what's in your head, I'm pointing to the Skype screen in your yeah. head. Um, I think it's in your head, regardless of what form you work on, it's just the muscles are different in terms of what you're flexing, but the headspace I think is very similar. That's a good point. That, it, 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 I think it was maybe the, the muscles, it's just something I'm not used to. It's okay, I'm used to, all right, uh, CEO talks about this, all right, I go find this B-roll, this B-roll, this B-roll, and instead I have, okay, these characters talked about this, and it should be something along this line, but have at it. And so mm -hmm. it's just, mm -hmm. oh man, what what am I gonna do? I I've, the thing is, I have so many options. Uh -huh. So sometimes yeah. it's well, easier when you don't have those options. That's that's true. That's true. Uh, I had a very interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago. This is taking us further Before. afield from Japan. That's so okay. Just haul me back in when you need to. No, let's go. Um, uh, but I was. Uh, part of a weekend set of panelists, like these mini TED Talks uh, at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where I've been doing some consulting on a new school that they're building. And this is uh, a school, it's uh, the Johnny Carson School of Emerging Media. That's the Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media. And so uh, the woman who's running it um, uh, put together this wonderful conference with a tremendous number of really interesting people who gave presentations. And one of the people uh, is really head writer for a huge immersive VR company. Um, and he's been doing it for about two and a half years. And he said, I asked him, I said, who are the kinds of writers who tend to do better in your company than others who get this. And he said, ironically, the people who do not do well are really, really top-notch animated film storytellers or traditional storytellers. They don't sort of get the fact that we're giving a lot of agency to our audience to kind of choose things. And it's very hard for them to, to do that. Those are muscles that they built up at major companies Pixar or Illumination or wherever they'd worked before, I don't know. Um, so those are the muscles that they've built up. The brain space, they've maybe subverted to the muscle space. And so once you break through that, then you're okay, mm -hmm. was his point. Okay. That it's more difficult to kind of stop the rote yeah, memory it's, uh, thing. It's hard, hard to teach an old editor new tricks. Yes, right. Right. Well, that's what my students are awesome at. 
like they'll go, why did you make a cut there? I'll show them something that I've done or an example of something they're cutting. Why'd you make the cut there? And the worst answer for me would be, well, I did it there because uh, oh, I've always done it there. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a really, really bad answer. <laughs> um, the better answer is, and I find this is true when a director asks me, why'd you make the cut there? So I usually have two reasons why I just don't know what they are until I think about them. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so my students have helped me to formulate answers and break away from the, well, yeah, this is going to work because it's always worked. So that's why I like doing the international as well, because whether I've done it in Brazil or other parts of the U.S. or uh, Europe, uh, several places in Europe, in Estonia, and uh, uh, in uh, Japan, a number of times in China, uh, Brazil, I think I said Brazil, Mexico, and you know, wherever I've gone, I'm going to Israel to do it in a couple of weeks. Um, wherever I do, uh, it's like I said, it's like uh, they have slightly different points of view, and I learn from that. So mm -hmm. I don't do the feature that I cut last year. I probably cut differently than I would have 10 years ago because I've had all number of people sort of questioning why this, why that, and I've become much more conscious of the things that we are doing for our audiences to be unconscious of. Hmm. Yeah, so, I think I think that's good teachers. I think that's something that a lot of us editors who kind of, you know, sit alone all day and just kind of submit stuff and then go on to the next project, submit stuff like we don't necessarily always have those people questioning, why did mm -hmm. you do this? Why did you do this? So, I I can understand just just getting getting firmer and harder in my ways. Um so I do yeah. think uh I maybe need to start letting some more people into my work and uh, not trying to hold it in so tight, you know? Well, that is hard when you, as I think you said on a recent show, you were talking about the isolation part. You were talking about um, <clears throat> working from home and uh, uh, or working just by yourself in an office. I know that I've been fortunate that all the edit rooms I've ever worked on, I've, um, uh, except for the last film, uh, have not been at home. So I always go somewhere, and there are other people there. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, sometimes I'll just turn the huge value of a really good assistant editor is I can turn to the assistants and say, "Does this suck? Is this <laughs> as bad as I think it is, or is this as good as I think it is?" Tell me, you know, just like tell me what your feelings are the first time you see it. And we lose that when we work just by ourselves. Yeah, I know we're, we're way off in the weeds of where we're supposed to go, but uh, I do a follow up to that. So when, when your assistant editor says, oh yeah, that does suck. Like, mm -hmm. wh what do you do? I mean, uh, do you, do you, is it back to the drawing board or try something else? Could be, it depends. And, um, and honestly, I mean, no one likes to hear that something sucks, but I also don't like to hear this is great. Mm -hmm. Don't touch it. Um, what's really valuable for me is what things about it suck, or even if you can't get that specific, say what area did you feel I lost you in? What area did you hate the most? Um, or what area did you really like? Why do you think it's great? Um, and to just be a little bit more specific, I find, and you know, I'm sure you find the same thing, is that 
often the specific notes that people give are not that helpful, right? So they may say, hold longer on that shot. When what they really mean is I didn't get a chance to live with the reaction of that character long enough. I, I miss that character change. So it's what we call the note under the note. Um, so I would, I love when people give feedback that is not just I like it or don't like it because hmm. that doesn't give me a note under the note. Oh man, that's that's really good. So all right, can can um can I ask something of you? Could yeah, I go ahead. could I maybe ask to have you back on in a future episode, maybe in a couple months or six months down the road, and we talk just about how to get great feedback. Oh sure, I'd love to do that, Josh. That's a yes. great topic. That is okay. really a great topic. And and we do spend whole semesters talking about that at school. Yeah, I know we didn't really prepare to talk about that today, and I'm sure you could go you could go off on that but but just selfishly I can. you get that feeling don't you yeah i want to talk about japan okay all and, right and probably you know 95 percent of my listeners right now are like all right i'm done but hey that's okay are you kidding 95 <laughs> percent of your listeners have turned off have have shut the podcast off much earlier because i've been babbling on uh, so they're gone long ago no worries <laughs> all right so all right now that it's just me and you and five percent of us out there um right. all right tell me just um so what did you teach in japan what were you teaching specifically uh there were two parts to the japan workshop uh but basically it was how editing can advance storytelling um it's had a shape audience reaction and story so um I did pretty much a full day lecture to the entire film uh, school. And then for the rest of the week after that, we, I just was working with the editors. Okay. And sometimes I supply or we supply material for them to edit and then we discuss. And sometimes we work on their films. In this particular case, uh, T, uh, Tokyo University Arts TUA and I uh, selected a couple of things for them to work with. So they had all of the same footage and they edited that scene. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then there was another episode where they all edited a trailer for the same movie. Okay. So um, did you notice? So, so yeah. So we were I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was, gonna, I was just going to ask, did you notice anything different or, or what is different about Japanese editing styles compared to American editing styles or stuff we're used to seeing? Hmm. So um, I think actually Japanese editing styles is among the closest to U.S. style editing of most of the countries that I've taught in. Um, they have an incredibly rich uh, filmmaking background with some unapologetically amazing filmmakers uh if i'll say anything um that they do hold on shots longer than many u.s filmmakers do um but the reality is with the influx of uh european u.s films all over the world mtv for the last 30 years not so much recently but uh, from when it first started, uh, has been a major influence on the worldwide, worldwide in terms of editing styles, preparing people to be okay with faster edits. Um, uh, but um, they 
the students were not fearful about holding on to something longer than many of my students would be. Um, sometimes when you asked why, there was no answer. And that I wouldn't accept. Okay. Um, it's like, why not edit here? Why not hold longer? Mm -hmm. Why that? And so we would talk about that. And, and then sometimes I would say, now go do something you don't want to do. I just want you to experiment with something. Now in this period here, let's cut to the face of the male character here uh, and then cut back to the female character's uh, uh, face. And let's see how that feels different if it does. And just do this. Uh, and they would then cut it and we'd take a look and it'd be like, yeah, that feels different. I don't know if I like it better. And I go, liking is not the point. <laughs> the point is here's here's a tool for you when you want to, let, let's talk about the different feeling that you had. What was that different feeling? Oh, I feel like, you know, a little bit more uh, into his head, his thought process. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe the next time you want to do that, you know you should make the cut there. <laughs> so just because you're used to seeing things that are cut longer than U.S. films doesn't mean that you should always pay attention to that. <laughs> just like I tell my students in the U.S., just because, hey, you've gone for a full second without a cut, right? <laughs> Why not go three seconds or five seconds without it? Why make a cut just because? So right. question everything. Yeah, that, that it, it's only rules because we made the rules. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and certainly rules change over time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen um, French Connection, the old uh, uh, Friedkin film. In my film studies classes, yes, uh, way oh. back when. But uh, it's it's been uh, you know uh, a couple beers and. I don't couple really <laughs> a couple beers ago. So well, yeah, I hear you. So let me see if I can remember my point there. Yeah. Um uh so several years ago, I went to look at it to talk about action editing cuz there's this chase sequence in it that is probably what every film teacher shows, right? So mm -hmm. there's a chase sequence in it that when it came out like everybody was like throwing up in their seats or, oh my God, this is like so intense. It's like, and when I went to look at it, it was like so slow compared to today. Uh, so not only are things different culture across different cultures, but our, even the United States culture has changed. And that was 1970 something. So what, 40 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, things change even within, um, you know, certain cultures. So, Japan, um, uh, the films and their editing style express emotion differently, uh, and the pace of the editing is a little different. And as a result, a lot of the coverage feels different. They don't do a lot of coverage uh, compared to the way a lot of U.S. Um, students would. Hmm. Now, uh, the, the industry as a whole in Japan, uh, do you feel like it might it, it feels pretty similar to ours. Uh, I mean, um, you know, you have your broadcast, you have your narrative films and all that. You have your corporate videos. Like, does it feel like ours? Yeah, it does. They have a humongously fantastic uh, 
commercials industry there that's done some really trend-setting, bizarro, wonderful um, spots. Um, uh, they also have been doing some really good experimentation there, and also in China, I've I've found have done some great experimentation with uh, 360 immersive. Um, obviously, games, huge, huge game uh, culture. Uh, so, in in those ways, technologically, it may be ahead of us on some level. Uh, but in terms of the way the structure is still set up, it's still a lot of director-driven for feature films. It's producer-driven, um, well, producer and director-driven in television. Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of producer-director-driven in television and um, uh, in commercials, very client-driven. I don't know as much about the corporate video side because I didn't really experience that while I was there, but mm -hmm. it felt like the crews worked the same way. They had the same positions on the crews that we have here, which is not always the case mm -hmm. in, in other cultures. Um, could you maybe give a, an example of something that would be different in another culture, not Japan? Oh, sure. So, for instance, in China... Um, the studio, the financier, is involved all the way from the first cut in the editing process. There's no protectiveness by the by most of the directors. I don't want to make a super broad generalization, but uh, as a um, an editor, you show your first cut right to the studio, and that would never happen here. Um, when I was full time feature editor you protected the director from anybody besides he or she seeing the film until they said it's ready. Hmm. Now it's time. They got 10 weeks for a feature cut by their DGA contract. They may say after five weeks, let's, let's screen it for someone else uh, for the studio or for the producers. Well, they may not, uh, right? Television, they've got four days for director's cut in, in China, it's like, what? What are you talking about 10 weeks? It's like, we want to be done in 10 weeks. Forget this, um, no studio involvement for 10. So um, the structure is different in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it goes all the way to, I mean, there are filmmakers uh, uh, who, uh, who I've met in Mexico uh, uh, who are, it's the exact opposite. It's like, why would I show anything to the studio? Mm -hmm. period ever ever hmm. um uh it's like here's the movie it's done <laughs> kind of thing so uh and obviously in the u.s we're we're it's a power thing but we're sort of in the middle of those two extremes hmm. that's interesting uh, from somebody outside of the uh film world um to, to hear all that uh so you taught in yokohama did you also teach when you were in kyoto or was that was that fun sightseeing oh kyoto <laughs> kyoto was just like sightseeing man uh, it was um and, and because there were different sort of things yokohama is like the jazz capital of of japan so it was like very cool to go and listen to jazz and do that but on um, we really felt we're going to be there for three weeks. Let's go see some things. And my wife and daughter who came with me uh, as well, uh, it's like, what do we want to do? And we went to, like I said, about three other cities. 
mm-hmm. uh, including Tokyo. Yokohama is very close to Tokyo. Yep. But, yep. Um, right. So Tokyo and Kyoto, um, with a little day trip to uh, Hakone, and then there was the Nashima Island that we went to, uh, and. and then it was like, there's so many more cities and no more time. I know. That's why I need to go back. So I didn't get to go I'm to with Os- you. I didn't get to go to Osaka and and Kobe. Uh, so those are on my bucket list. And uh, up north in Hokkaido, which is on the the northern island, uh, I still want to go there. Um, and if listeners you're not familiar, Hokkaido, they're just like world world famous for their uh, ice cream. So uh, Hokkaido ice cream, like I'm dying to have. And uh, I'm sure most people have heard of Kobe beef. Kobe beef comes from Kobe, Japan, which is uh, close to uh, Kyoto. Um, There's kind of like a a stretch of cities that go west from Kyoto, which is Osaka and and Kobe. Um, It sounds like we were too close and we didn't do any of that. I know. Kobe beef. Yeah, why not? Yeah. So uh, there's another cut of beef. Oh, and I'm blanking on the name, but they serve it in Kyoto. You can get Kobe in Kyoto, but um, it I, I swear it, it's just as good. And uh, we had it at a, a traditional Japanese hibachi uh, in Kyoto. And no, they don't do the the little choo-choo train on the on the grill or anything. No, they they cook your food with precision, uh-huh. and it's absolutely delicious. Um, mm-hmm. Are you are you a sushi guy? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. There was some great sushi there. The other thing that we discovered, this is a fun fact, um, that uh, Yokohama is the city where the ramen, the, the, the those cup of noodles, ramen, mm-hmm. uh, where the original manufacturer of that uh, ramen uh, was born and they where they make it so they have a ramen museum yes i've been to the uh cup ramen museum also you have okay yes. so like you know that's like so hilarious to me with like the largest kind of you could make your own ramen mix out of like five i mean it's like insane i know so uh and so at the museum listeners uh you can make your own cup of ramen and yeah. uh, you like draw on the on the ramen uh cup and and you use the little machine and it puts all the stuff in there it seals it for you so we actually we never ate ours um because we just you know we had a good time so they're just like sitting up in our pantry um with yeah our... well did they give it to you in that big giant bubble uh yes yes yeah, so, but yeah we had to take it out of the bubble so we could take it home yeah i know it's <laughs> you completely cannot travel with that no, not at all. <laughs> it's not for international flights, especially with the TSA. Uh, uh, so, yeah, there's just like so much out there. And uh, we're huge uh, photography and art fans. And we uh, and my wife and I like to collect on a small level. Um, uh, my daughter is a, is a photographer, so it's gotten us into that world. So we were in as many museums as were open in Tokyo. Um uh, while we were there uh, with the art scene, and it's like amazing what's there. So it's, yeah, definitely must go back. I'm with you. Yeah, so uh, I don't think we're, we're going to make it back for at least another five years just based on <laughs> life plans and hopefully having a kid one day, uh, you know, in a couple of years. So, plans get in the way, right? I know, I know. So, so like, part of my thing was like, all right, I'm going to have Norman on. I'm going to have him get me a hookup in Japan so I can go like hang out and work over there for a few months and, and just, you know, 
let my wife hang out here. Maybe she can come with me. I don't know. But uh, maybe, maybe, right? Well, maybe. There, there is a possibility they may ask me back again, and then my wife was like, "Well, maybe." In a week in Yokohama, I've I've done Yokohama, you know. It's like I don't speak Japanese, so I can't get to do it better. Um, but that uh, uh, there's some really, really great – all the international work that I do has come um, either through USC um, because they may go to USC. The, the Jordan thing came because the Royal Film Commission in Jordan went to USC – and made um, a deal to help him build the school. And so I was able to be part of that at the beginning. But lots of it just comes from starting to do it. And once you do these things, then you get invited here and then here and then here and here. Um, so you, you start doing that and you'll never see your kid again. That's like, <laughs> that's like a real problem. No, I mean, luckily, we, we waited until my daughter was... Uh, you know, out of college herself before doing most of this stuff. But I would definitely try and do that. The, the people who you meet are great people. Oh, well, um, I think this has been a fantastic conversation. And uh, I want to give uh, you. give you a chance to tell listeners like uh, where to find you, uh, where they can get your books, um, that sort of stuff. Oh, so um, probably the best internet presence I have at this point because my blog, I think it's been two years since I wrote anything in it, um, but that the best uh, is through the Twitterverse. So uh, my Twitter handle is uh, Schnittman, S-C-H-N-I-T-T-M-A-N. Um, and you can follow me there. You can hit me up there anytime. I'm more right. than happy to talk to anybody worldwide. Yeah, so uh, uh, definitely I need to have you back on uh, sometime soon. We can talk about uh, how to get proper feedback and go, you know, into all sorts of other things. Um, but, oh, man, thank you so much for coming Happy on the show. Do this is great fun. I mean, I feel like I wandered into so many areas. I have no idea if this is interesting to anybody, <laughs> but that uh, it's interesting to the two of us who are left, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> No, this is great fun, Josh. Thanks so much for uh, asking me on. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Norman, so much for taking some time out to talk to us today. And thank you, listeners, for listening. Uh, you guys know where to find us, uh, commandeditpodcast.com. Uh, at Command Edit over on Twitter and, of course, over in the Facebook group, uh, which I know we harp on all the time for you guys to go join, but that's because we have a lot of fun over there and we talk and share stories and, you know, it's a good time. All right, uh, next week, uh, Nick is back, Nick and me, and we have another guest on, uh, which I'm sure you're going to love, uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, and, yeah, uh, how does Nick end it? All right, so I've been Josh. Nick is not here. You've been you. And uh, I will see you next time. I think it goes something like that. Oh, and if you want to hear the story uh, about how I got, you know, stranded in Japan, here it is. Uh, that works. I'll, I'll go anywhere you want with this. It's, you know your audience after, what, 60, 70 podcasts? You know better than I do. Yeah, so uh, I, I'll, I'm going to try and focus in on Japan. Japan, but uh, if we mm -hmm. get into the weeds and we go worldwide, that's completely cool. Let's just see where this takes us. Um, okay. So uh, I, I am, uh, I, I self-confess as a, uh, I think they call it a Japanophile, someone who is in love with <laughs> Japan. 
I can see why. Yeah. yeah so I I've been Some twice. Yeah. So oh, you have where mm-hmm. where did you go? Uh, so back in the end of twenty twenty fourteen, uh, I spent uh, a little more than two weeks in Tokyo and outside of Tokyo in uh, like Kamakura. Uh, I stayed in Zushi for most of the time at the uh, um, military base there at the Navy base. Um, because uh, my my sister in law's husband is station was stationed over there, so uh, you uh-huh. know we had the free place to stay and everything. So uh, we took advantage of that. Went to uh, Kyoto. Um, mm-hmm. Then our second trip um, did uh, you know Tokyo and that whole surrounding area again, uh, and made it up to Hakone that time. Oh God, Hakone! Yeah, that's that, that's amazing. So so did you um, uh, did you stay up there in Hakone? Did you? Yeah, did you go to, like, the art stuff up there uh, and all of that? Didn't really make it to the art stuff. We were in Hakone for about three days. And by the way, we're I'm going to pick a point um, somewhere before this. And oh, we're already, just we're already rolling. We're, we're into oh, okay. the episode. Okay. So uh, I'm going to... Ooh, tricky. I have I have the longest story about Hakone. And I'm going to try and dumb it down into, like, you know, 25 seconds. Uh, so our first day, we walked down from our hotel, and we didn't know we weren't staying in Hakone. We were staying in the smaller city of Moto Hakone. Uh-huh. So we didn't know this yet. So we thought there would be stuff to do, and, and, and we'd be able to get back to the hotel just fine. So we walked down. It's it's maybe about four miles, and it's it's December. It's right on a lake. So it's a little chilly, but you know it's fine. Yeah. We're going to take a taxi back, take a, take a bus back um, to our hotel later on. So uh, anyway, by the time we get down there, it's seven o'clock, it's dark out, and we find there's absolutely nothing open. And uh, long story short, um, we get stranded and there's no cars, there is absolutely nothing. And we can't really walk back to the hotel because it's a tiny, windy road through the woods, essentially, back to yeah. the hotel. And we find, we find a Chinese man who had literally done the same thing as us. And... <laughs> Uh, and we find this one Japanese man who had his little wood crafting store still open for whatever reason. And um, he's, he gave us directions to this taxi stand uh, to stand at. So we stand at this taxi stand for maybe 45 minutes with six cars driving by. And we get, we, we're like, okay, we got to do something else. Um, so we start, we, we head down to, uh, there was like a 7-Eleven at the far end of town. So like, okay, we can make it there. There's, we can hitchhike back or call the hotel and they can rescue us. And this taxi drives by. And literally, like, we haven't seen a taxi or anything. And I chase it down the street. And then it stops at this uh, at this closed restaurant. And out walks these two people and they jump in the taxi and the taxi speeds off before we can get it. Ah, and we're like, what? like a horror movie. Yeah, I, I mean, this time it's 9 o'clock at night. We're starving. We're freezing cold. We're with this man who doesn't speak English or Japanese either, because none of us speak Japanese. Right. And um, but so we bang on the the restaurant's uh, door, who was closed, and they didn't want to help us. They didn't want to open the door. But eventually, they they opened up, and my wife talked him into calling calling us a taxi, and we made it back to our hotel in wow. Mo- in Moto Hakone, which we learned is different from Hakone. Mm-hmm.